Good evening, everyone. Thanks very much, Jared, for praying uh, for us there. Do open your Bibles back up to Acts uh, chapter 11 um, that Naomi uh, read uh, for us earlier. We're going to be working our way through that um, this evening. Um, I know quite a few people uh, did tune in yesterday to the big event, to the coronation. Um, Watching Watching uh, the coronation, I watched some of it, uh, what my daughters would let me, really. Um, one of the things that fascinated me the most uh, was looking out for who was there. Who had got an invitation to an event like that? And what was it that meant that they were invited, but not those who were outside on the street? For some, uh, it was a family link. I mean, you'd expect to see William and Kate and their children there. For others, it was their position, the prime minister, or an important royal or leader from another country. For others, it was what they had done. I know that in reading about it, there were many public service workers who would have been invited. And for others, well, I wasn't exactly sure what they were doing there. Ant and Deck? I mean, you really can't have a coronation without them, can you? Anyways, I heard there were about 2,000 people in total who got that invitation. And as we just said, they were invited for all sorts of different reasons. And what's clear as well is that a lot of people were not invited. Eventually, I realized, sadly, that that particular letter wasn't going to come through my letterbox. Thinking of all of that, though, and then turning to consider our passage for this evening, I think we are faced with similar kinds of questions. Who is invited? And what means that you get invited? What gets you in? Not into the coronation, but something much more significant than that. Who is invited into God's family? Invited to come to God and find life. And what is it that gets people in? Those are the key questions, I think, raised in our passage this evening. And they are so significant for us. Are you and I invited to come to God, to be a part of his family, his people? And if so, what do we need to do to take up that invitation? If you were with us last Sunday evening, you hopefully uh, spotted, as Naomi was reading our passage, that a lot of it felt pretty familiar. You see, what we have here as we turn to our passage this evening in Acts 11 is essentially a retelling from Peter's perspective of what has just gone on in Acts chapter 10 that we were looking at last week. Thankfully, it's a little bit shorter for us this evening. But I think it's worth noticing something about why we have this retelling here in the Bible. And I think it's because what we are seeing here is as radical as it comes, is as important as it comes, because what we are seeing here is getting right to the heart of the gospel. Just as Peter in our passage wants to make sure that what has happened to him is 100% clear to those who are questioning him. 
So Luke wants each of us to be 100% clear about what is going on here. Maybe we, maybe Theophilus, who it was originally written to, missed it the first time. Well, here it is again. Listen, says Luke, this really is a radical gospel message. A message that, again, I hope and pray that we will leave this evening resting in, rejoicing in. Jesus really is for all and really is all anyone needs. Look with me at verses 1 to 2 and we'll begin to see this and understand again just how radical this message is. Remember, if you were with us last week in, in chapter 10, we saw Cornelius, this Gentile, and all who were with him coming to faith in Jesus, believing in him, and receiving the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the name of Jesus. And then we saw Peter and the others who went with him to Cornelius' house remaining there for several days. Well, verse 1 then picks up on this story. Here's where we are this evening. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Seems it's not just in Northern Ireland that word and news can travel fast. But this news here causes concern. Verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And I think this response shows us again just how radical all that's going on here is. You'd have imagined the first response, if you look with me, would be the one down in verse 18. The people glorified God. But that couldn't be further from the case, could it? Here we read that Peter instead faces criticism. These from the circumcision party, those concerned about holding on to Jewish traditions and customs and laws, well, they take issue with Peter. Notice that what they say isn't actually a question there in verse 3. I think it comes with this kind of force. Peter, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Explain yourself. What do you think you were doing? And there appears to be two objections in particular in view in what they're saying here. The first objection is that Peter went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You can imagine the conversation going like this. Peter, you know better than anyone. We don't eat with Gentiles. We don't even go into their houses, let alone eat their food. Leviticus 11, Peter? Leviticus 20, Peter? Do you remember what it says there? I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean and the, from the unclean, the unclean bird and beast from the clean. What do you say, Peter? No separation of clean and unclean in anything you're doing. And that picks up, I think, on the second objection that I think is in the background to all of this. First off, pure and simple, Peter, you went to uncircumcised men. There was no separation between Jew and Gentile at all. 
in what he did. After all, Jews were meant to be this holy nation, God's people. What does that make the Gentiles? Well, not God's people. People to keep separate from. So there's no reason to be going to them in the first place, these people are saying, let alone eating with them, Peter. Explain yourself. Which is exactly what we see Peter then do in the rest of our passage. From verse 4 onwards, Peter explains himself. Verse 4, look at what it says. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. And as we now hear Peter's explanation, as with last week, here is what I want us to see. Peter is essentially saying, listen, I get it. This is really radical. And you'd be right to me dragging me in here and questioning me if this was all down to me, if I was the one who had gone out and done this all of my own volition. But Peter's saying it absolutely wasn't the case. That isn't how it was. This message that Jesus is for all and is all is not my own adapted message, Peter's saying, but it's actually God's gospel message. See, God's fingerprints, his direction, his work is all over what happens here in this chapter and what's happened in the chapter before. Look at verse 5 onwards, and we'll see this again briefly this evening as we recap again much of what we saw last week. Verses 5 to 10, first off, we see that this is through God's declaration, the part of what Peter receives here. Peter's retelling starts off, if you notice, differently to Acts chapter 10 because it's starting with him. He's, he's the one recounting this. So the first thing that happened to him, well, it was that vision, if you remember, which comes to him as he is praying. Verse 5, as Peter is seeking the word of the Lord, he sees something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, coming down to him. And as in verse 6, Peter looks at it closely, he observes animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. Not only that, though, but then we read that this voice speaks to Peter and tells him to rise, kill, and eat, by which Peter responds, No, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Of course, Peter says, I won't eat the unclean animals on that sheet, Lord. But verse 9, and here is God's declaration in all of this. The voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. That is, unclean. As we said last week, God also makes sure Peter gets this message loud and clear, doesn't he? In verse 10, this happened three times. Even the, the references to heaven, they're, they're scattered right throughout this vision. They point, don't they, to this being God's revelation to Peter. As Peter prayed, God showed him this glorious truth. Where before there was to be distinction between clean and unclean, no longer. No longer would any animal be unclean 
And along the same lines then, no longer would there be clean and unclean people. No longer the Jew over here, clean, and the Gentile over here, unclean. And Peter says to those criticizing him, essentially, this is what God declared to me, what he revealed to me. And this revelation and the wider understanding now that the Jew and Gentile distinction is to be no more is made even clearer to Peter in what happens next as we then go on to see God's direction, direction of both Peter and Cornelius as we looked at last week. Verse 11, we read that the men arrive from Cornelius and Peter then says clearly to those who are criticizing him, and at this point God spoke to me again and directed me. He says, the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. That is, showing no partiality against them as Gentiles. Just as if the Jews had had come to ask Peter to come to them, he would have gone, well, so now Peter does the same for these Gentiles. This is simply Peter obeying and living out what God has just declared to be true, what he's directing Peter to do. And having arrived at Cornelius' house, Peter now points out God's direction of Cornelius as well in all of this. And we saw this last week, verse 13, Cornelius recounted to Peter how this angel had come and had told him to go send for Peter. And not only that, this is big, and this is extra in here, what we read this week, verse 14. The angel had said that Peter will declare to Cornelius a message by which he would be saved and by which he and all of his household would be saved. Again, Peter is making this so clear, isn't he? This isn't me and my actions in view here. This is God and his actions He is the one who gave me this vision. He sent those men to me. He told me to go with them. He'd sent this angel to Cornelius. And most of all, he, by this angel, had made it clear that I was to preach the same message of salvation to them as I'd been preaching up to this point to the Jews. And as if that wasn't enough for Peter, he then points out God's confirmation of all of this, that the message of Jesus really is for all, without distinction, as he tells them what happens next in verse 15. There we read that as Peter began to speak, that is, while he was still speaking, he hadn't finished, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. Do you see the drawing together of the them and the us? that is going on here in this passage. The Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us. Now you see them and us together. Together in the same boat. And this is what Peter goes on to say as well, picking up on what Jesus had said to the disciples right back at the beginning of Acts. He remembers that Jesus had said that John would baptize with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Well, verse 17 then, Peter says, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, this is God's confirmation. Jesus really is for all. Who was Peter then to stand in God's way? See, says Peter, that you that Jesus said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, that you is now them and it's us together. After all, we've both received this same gift, gift from God, his Holy Spirit. I don't think there's any doubt that Peter recognizes that all of this is pretty radical. Again, this is why I think we get all of the details here retold again. If this was no big deal, we may have just passed right over it. But here is what Peter says. Yes, this is radical. Yes, you are criticizing me, but this isn't my doing. This is God's work. Because this is God's message. That as Peter had said to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 42, everyone now, everyone now who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And as we see here, so everyone believing in Jesus will also receive the gift of the Spirit. There is no distinction. Just as he came, the Spirit came on the disciples and those thousands of Jews back in Acts chapter 2 during Pentecost, so now he has come onto those Gentile believers, into their lives as well. This is God's clear message. Jesus is for all. This is God's message, says Peter, not mine. And see with me in verse 18, the church's acceptance of this. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. That is, they had no further objections. And they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now as we read these this final verse here, I think it's significant to see what the people say, but also what they don't say. First off, what they say, the people, presumably a group, including these other apostles, they say, don't they, they recognize what Jesus is for all. They say, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, this was the distinction back then. Jew, on the one side, Gentile on the other. But now they are brought together, Jew and Gentile. And if that distinction is gone, well then every other distinction is also gone. This really is everyone. Everyone and anyone really can be a part of God's people now. The invitation here is as wide open as it comes. And as the people make clear in what they say, they recognize too, just like Peter, that God has done this. They say that God has granted this repentance to the Gentiles too. But then also notice with me what the people here in verse 18 don't say. And that is, they don't say anything else other than what they do say. 
See, they don't say, as we might expect, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life if they will also stay away from unclean foods. Or if they will also first observe the laws of Moses. Or if they will first be circumcised. Show they're a part of God's people and his covenant that way. No. There's none of that, is there? See, I think the full stop that we see at the end of verse 18 is actually glorious. And it's so crucial when it comes to this section in Acts. Remember who was it that raised the concerns at the beginning? Those of the circumcision party. Those set on holding on to these Jewish customs and laws. And what was the major concern? That Peter ate with these uncircumcised men. They ate, he ate unclean food. And yet nothing here in verse 18 is said about circumcision, about food, about any Old Testament law at all. No, it simply reads this. To Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter spoke about in chapter 10. And here we see repentance. That is all that is needed to get in, to become a part of God's people. Not only is Jesus for all, but as this passage makes clear, he is all. He is all we or anyone needs. So as we reflect on this, for each of us here this evening, here are two simple truths for us to personally, I pray, rejoice in and rest in from what we're seeing. First off, that this good news of Jesus is for you this evening. We said this last week, if you were with us, but we could say this, I think, every single week here at church, and it wouldn't be a problem, because this is a truth that we need to hear on repeat. This good news of Jesus, of forgiveness found in him, it is for you. It is for each of us here. What Peter has just shown us, all with the help of God's direction and confirmation, is that the invitation to be a part of God's people is open. It is open to every single person. Here in this room, here in our city, and right across our world. In fact, we could think of this sermon, what we see here in Acts chapter 11, in this way. What we are hearing this evening is just like an invitation dropping through your letterbox, personally addressed to you. And as you open up, what's the invitation for? Not to go to King Charles' coronation, as exciting as that could have been. Now it's to something much more exciting. This is an invitation that says you are invited to be a part of the true king's family. To be a part of God's family. That invitation is for you. That invitation is what the whole book of Acts, I think, is about. It is about Jesus calling his disciples to take this good news, this invitation, right to the ends of the earth. Take this invitation of life. Life found in Jesus to everyone. 
as it were, dropping this invitation through every letterbox they can find. The invitation, you see, to be a part of God's family is now open to all. And that means it's open to you and to me this evening. If we will take up this invitation, call on the name of Jesus, we too, like Cornelius, and like millions upon millions upon millions of people since him, to take that invitation up, we too can be called sons and daughters of God and be a part of his people. That's the invitation for us here this evening, without exception. Without exception. No matter where you are from, no matter what your family background is, no matter your culture, your heritage, no matter what job you have or whether you have a job at all, no matter how old or young you are, no matter, no matter, no matter. You know that that one thing that in your mind singles you out from everyone else here? One thing that, that perhaps makes you feel worth less even than everyone else here. Do you know what? This invitation comes to you no matter even that. No matter what. There is no exception here. Jesus is for you. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. I hope that as we see this, you feel this again this evening as good news. Good news, because that is what it is. But amazingly, that isn't where we see the good news stop here, from what we're we're seeing in this passage. No, see, there's a second thing, I think, for us to rest and rejoice in personally this evening. To accept this invitation, you see, personally addressed to you there is only one person you need, and that is Jesus. Jesus really is all you need to open up this invitation and accept it. Those criticizing Peter here in our passage, see, they wanted to add back onto the gospel, didn't they? Whether purposefully or not, whether well-intentioned or not, these people essentially wanted to say to the Gentiles, Well, maybe you can be saved, but become more like us first. Get circumcised. Eat the right clean food. Then come to Jesus. That'll be what makes you a part of God's people. But God's resounding message here in Acts 11 and then picked up again in Acts 15 and then picked up again in a letter like Galatians that we've been thinking about in the morning is this. No, it is Jesus and Jesus alone who makes you a part of God's people, of his family. Circumcision or uncircumcision, what you eat or don't eat, those things do not matter. What matters is Jesus and whether you are trusting in him. And here in our passage, I think we see what this simple trust in Jesus involves. Believing in Jesus and repenting. Verse 17 here, and chapter 10, verse 42 from last week, they speak, don't they, of that belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is no passive, almost kind of disinterested belief. 
No, that's where the repentance comes in, of verse 18. Trusting in Jesus, believing in him in a manner that means you become a part of God's people, means also recognizing our need of him because of our sin and repenting. See, even the demons who met Jesus on earth, well, they recognized him. They knew who he was, didn't they? But Christian faith is not just recognizing who Jesus is, but it's also turning. Turning from our sin, repenting of it, and then turning to Jesus. Turning to Jesus now as the Lord and King of our lives, as we were thinking about this morning. And in doing that, as verse 18 concludes, here is the amazing news. We find life. With Jesus as Lord of our life, that leads to life. Life now, as we begin to enjoy many, many blessings, all the blessings that flow from Christ, but also life eternally, as we continue to enjoy those blessings without end, in their fullness forevermore. As we think about this, and as I pray we rejoice in this, I just want us to spot something that's lying in the background to all of this passage, and also in the background of Acts chapter 10 as well. This idea of clean and unclean. See, it was God himself who had first commanded the Israelites in the Old Testament not to eat these unclean foods. And that was for a number of good reasons. First, it prevented them from being constantly drawn towards the other nation's gods. See, not eating the same foods as them meant they couldn't share food together, join them around their dinner tables. No, this is one way of keeping them separate. Then also, it reminded God's people of his holiness and of their need to be holy likewise, set apart from the nation's. Here's the reason the Lord gives in Leviticus 11. The whole chapter laying out detail upon detail of what is unclean. But here's what verse 44 of Leviticus 11 says. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am holy. But here's the greatest reason God gave those Old Testament commands concerning clean and unclean foods because they pointed to Jesus, to Christ, the only one who could ever take away our true uncleanness. Not our physical uncleanness. Jesus himself taught that that wasn't the problem. That's not really the issue. No, take away our spiritual uncleanness, the uncleanness of our hearts. As one, as one writer puts it, the Old Testament food laws and the laws like them, they express the incompatibility of uncleanness with God's holiness. And so God's people then and we today are meant to see that and recognize that given that we aren't clean, we can't approach our God on our own. We need something We need someone by whom we can do that. 
And that person is the only one whose heart was never defiled, who never was unclean, who never sinned, the Lord Jesus Christ, who on that cross atoned for all of our uncleanness, all of our sin, taking it upon himself and paying for it in full, that we can be clean. Now, you see, if we will confess that sin, repent of it, turn to Christ, the reality is that what we eat or drink, that can't make us unclean before God. No. We have a Savior. We have Jesus. And by him, we have been made perfectly clean, been made righteous. Though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Clean. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool, clean. That's the picture, I think, in the background of all that we're seeing here in these passages in Acts. Unclean sinners made clean by the blood of the Lamb. And if Jesus has already done that for us, what more could we possibly need? What more could we possibly add? Do we really think that thinking of all that Jesus has already done, we can now add to that a little bit more maybe this week by, by making us clean, by, by avoiding some foods or drink, or by, by giving a certain amount of money to the church or to other good causes? We make ourselves more clean by reading the Bible 30 minutes every day, by praying regularly. Make ourselves more clean by not watching that particular TV program. We can't. Jesus has made us clean. If you want to think more on this, get listening uh, to Steve's recent sermons in Galatians. They've been so helpful in this. See, trying to add to Jesus and the gospel is actually to take away from Jesus and the gospel. Here's what one pastor and writer puts. To array the cross with religious works, that's to smudge its glory, insulting and devaluing the perfect work of the perfect Savior. Our passage this evening reminds us of this good news. Jesus is for you, and Jesus really is all you need. Let's this evening rejoice in that, rest in that, be encouraged by that. You see, if we were to have to try to add on any of our own works to the work of Christ, we would inevitably be doomed to failure, a life of anxiety and fear and depression. But as it is, Christ really is enough. We can find rest. We can find peace. We can find a deep, unshakable joy in him every single day, the one who has made us clean. As we, I pray, can and do rest and rejoice in that truth this evening, and and we go on remembering that this week, knowing that we are made perfectly clean in Christ. I do also then want to leave us with a challenge. A challenge that I think is here in this passage. See, the radical gospel 
that we have, that Jesus is for all and is all we need, should, I think, leave us glorifying God, verse 18. But it should also leave us seeing and thinking on the radical call to unity that comes along with it. See, if you're rejoicing this evening that Jesus is for you, that also means that Jesus is for all. And as much as that statement might not initially come to us as a challenge, I think it really can be for us. First, that statement is an instant leveler, isn't it? It puts us all, no matter our level of education, no matter our interpersonal skills, no matter our popularity, no matter how much money we may have in the bank or not, it puts us all in the same boat, doesn't it? Jesus is for all of us. And that means that just as there's no distinction in God's eyes between any of us, so we have no right to make distinctions between ourselves and others too. Every single one of us, as Christians here this evening, stands here not on our own merits, but solely on the merits of Christ. We know that we are loved in him. I wonder if the way we interact with others here at church or other believers that we might know at work or wherever it might be, does that always show that truth to be the case? Or can we, even in subtle ways, begin to build back up these divisions between us, divisions that we've seen broken down here? Or Perhaps we're just always moving towards somebody who maybe is going to give back to us in some way. Subtly making distinctions. Here's what James says to us in his letter. We read it recently in small groups. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Jesus is for all. And the church, the people of God, should be a reflection of that. And we should reflect that amongst each other. Is there any kind of snobbery, one-upmanship, even in, in how we look at others around us? Because of how cultured or not people around us are? Because of a particular theological viewpoint that they hold that we don't agree with? That's kind of like what I think the Jews were doing here towards the Gentiles. But who are we? Who are we except those who have received the mercy of God? I wonder what it would look like for you and for me, even after tonight's service or this week or just week by week here at church, to live this truth out, to actively live this truth out meeting with God's people and making no distinction as we do that, showing no partiality, discriminating against no one in our actions, our attitudes, or our thoughts. That's a challenge, isn't it? But you see, Jesus is for all. Let's as a church look to continue to live that out as much as we can, looking to God for help as we do it. 
But then finally, I think this challenge and, and call to unity in Christ comes in recognizing that if Jesus is all you and I need, he is also all that anyone needs. Now, I think and hope on reflecting a bit on this this past week, here at Great Vic, we aren't in any way purposefully adding to the gospel. As we've been thinking about in Galatians, we want to say, no, Christ is enough. But I wonder if there might be subtle ways that we as a church or we as individuals here could be making it out that Christ is enough as long as you also do this, do that. Don't watch this TV program. Wear, don't wear this particular type of clothing. Don't drink alcohol. Read a particular version of the Bible. Hold to the same political viewpoints. Listen to the particular types of worship music. Fill in your own blank there, really. That's the challenge, isn't it? What particular cultural, social, even religious barriers or additions to the gospel might we, even unknowingly, be communicating to others? That when other believers see us, or even worse, when non-believers see us or hear us talking, they think, well, that must be what's needed to become a part of God's people, part of his family. I don't think I have the answers here. But let's just be aware that even if what we are saying with our lips is that Jesus is all we need, unknowingly, in our attitudes, in our actions, we can be communicating something else. We really can, as Christians, in Christ, know unity, even in diversity. In fact, that's one of the greatest beauties of the church, isn't it? That as Jared was praying earlier, it unites people from all kinds of different places, all different walks of life, all different backgrounds. It unites people who by any other worldly standards would have nothing to do with each other. Acts 10 and 11 tell us this. We have a radical gospel that we, each and every one of us, really can rest and rejoice in. We have all received the greatest invitation that has ever been sent out. The invitation to be a part of God's family through Jesus. Knowing that he really is all we need to accept that. And then these chapters then remind us, as we've just said, of the radical call to unity that flow out of that invitation. Invitation to be a part of God's people made up of every tribe, every nation made up of the upper class, the lower class, the middle class, made up of kings, made up of servants, made up of people from every culture and religious background. We are, every single one of us, one, united in Christ. So this week, and as we press on in following him, let's look to rest in that, rejoice in that, and let that shape all of our relationships together too. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the invitation 
to be a part of your family. And Lord, we thank you that that invitation comes to every single one of us this evening. Here in the building, those watching online, wherever we might be, whatever our background, whether we feel worthy, whether we feel so unworthy, that invitation reaches us and we thank you. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that in grabbing hold of him, of his accomplishments for us, we find all that we need. And so, Lord, we come, we confess again, we, we confess our belief in your Son, and, Lord, we repent. We repent of our sin, and we, we turn from it, and we turn to Jesus once again this evening. Lord, we want to make him the king of our lives. And Lord, we thank you so much for the unity that as we do that, we join so many others here in this church and right across the world who have also made Jesus their king. Lord, help us to live out the realities of that amongst each other. Lord, help us to keep pointing each other to Christ. Help us to keep reminding ourselves and reminding each other that all we need is found in him. In Jesus' name, we rejoice this evening. Amen. Amen. Well, as we close, we're going to uh, sing this song, By Faith We See the Hand of God. God's purposes, His plan. Uh, and here we, hold, we grab hold of the promises of God by faith in Christ. So let's stand and rejoice and praise our God as we sing this together.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, blameless, clean before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore.